Let's read Matthew 11, then we'll pray. We'll pick up in verse 20, read down to verse 30. Are we all there? Good. Matthew 11, 20 to 30. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, just as we read those very familiar words, we just appreciate the rest in Jesus. Father, uh, I pray this morning for anyone laboring, burdened, weighed down, struggling, oppressed, or, or pressed down, Lord, in some way, by something, by some heavy weight, Lord. And I pray that they would glean wisdom and, and blessing from this passage today as we see it in its context. And Father, I pray you continue the work you started among every soul and every heart in this fellowship and those across the uh, county this morning. We pray for our brothers and sisters all uh, worshiping you this morning, Lord, all across the county in every different denomination, Lord. And we just recognize our oneness in Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. May we be encouragers to the whole body. All God's people said, Amen. It's kind of refreshing. We get through that whole part about, you know, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Sodom, and, and then we read those verses that we know so well. And it's like, wow, I didn't know that was there. And so we get to see this, this wonderful passage in the context that it was originally spoken. I think you'll be really blessed to see that. Uh, just a quick question. Is anybody tired? I mean, I think we pretty much live tired, don't we? At Starbucks and the money we spend on coffee, I think, is testimony to that. We just live tired. There's so many things to do and so many burdens and so many responsibilities and so many obligations. And, and I like it because this passage speaks to us. And so I hope that you guys are blessed as we read this because we are tired. And I think that you'll see as we go through uh, some answers for those of us that find ourselves just wore out, as they say in the South. I'm just wore out. Maybe they say that in the North too. I don't know. So we start in, in verse 20. And, and of course, the, 
it's picking up right where we left off, verses 16 through 19. Jesus had been speaking. The words are all read in my Bible. If you have a red letter Bible, this is Jesus speaking. And he's talking about the generation, his generation, the generation that is existing while he is speaking. And he's talking about how they've just been hard to please, and spiritually speaking. They, they, God is trying to reveal himself to them. He's trying to be their savior. He's coming to his people. And, and yet, no matter how he came, they wouldn't receive. Like little children that just were just having a bad day and, and were contrary, they just couldn't be pleased. And so this picks up where that left off in verse 20. After this, he then began to rebuke the cities. See, it started with the generation, and now he's speaking to these cities, and, he start, and he, he's rebuking them. And ouch, have any of you ever been rebuked or chastened or reproached or just somebody comes and says something to you and you just don't want to hear it, but it's the truth. And sometimes you know that truth is hard to hear. And so there's this wall that goes up right away that says, I don't care whether you're right or wrong, I'm not admitting it. And we tend to close down. But rebuke is a really important part of our our walk with Christ. I get rebuked regularly by the Word of God. Anybody else? I read something, oh, that's me. I just got nailed by the Lord again. He's correcting me. He's rebuking me and that's so he rebukes the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent the problem was that their hearts would not be turned to him they were doing their own thing going their own way they would not despite what john the baptist said they recognized he was a great prophet yet they wouldn't listen to his message they saw jesus's mighty works and that they they wouldn't recognize and acknowledge that he was the Savior. They wouldn't repent. No matter what they did, no matter what God did, no matter what Jesus did, no matter what John the Baptist did, and this was the issue. This is what God is looking for. He's not looking for excitement or a new vocabulary. He's looking for people to repent, to change their heart, to change their life, to change their direction, to turn. Uh, not that you have to produce changes in your life. But the change that God is looking for is for you to turn away from sin, away from the world, and to God. So this is the issue. So verse 21, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, uh, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he brings in Capernaum, and, and he compares that to Sodom. So he's making these comparisons. And this whole section, if I can summarize it, is about the tragedy of wasted privilege. The tr- listen again, if you want to like make a note there, the tragedy of wasted privilege. Now, if you are like me, I, I like to watch, I- I've shared this before, I- I'm not a fiction guy. I like nonfiction. I like real life because truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. Truth is more interesting than fiction. And I love particularly to read stories that I read to the kids not too long ago, the story of Booker T. Washington. And what he overcame in the way as a young boy, how he had to work so hard and then he would, uh, would go to school. And uh, just all the, the, the life that he led. And as, as an eight-year-old boy having to put sacks of grain on the back of a mule or a donkey and the sack had fallen off. And he had to sit there in the street for hours because he wasn't big enough to get the sack, that you know, 90-pound sack of grain back on the donkey. He had to wait. And just all that he had been through as a young man and to see then just the way his life turned out. I love the underdog stories. I love to see people that didn't have much privilege, 
that didn't have much opportunity, that grew up hard, and to watch and see them overcome that. But on the opposite side, we see people that have great privilege, great opportunity, every blessing possible open to them, all kinds of doors and and opportunities available. And yet what happens? They can be so easily squandered, so easily taken for granted. And that is exactly what Jesus is talking about right here. When he talks about um, Bethsaida, when he talks about Capernaum, when he talks about Chorazin, these are Jewish cities. They're all in the, fairly close in the region of Galilee. And this is where Jesus' ministry was centered. It says they saw these mighty works. They saw all these things done. What a great privilege. What a great opportunity. Imagine if Jesus lived in Palmyra. And we watched. It was, it was your neighbor that was raised from the dead. Or you were in the crowd at Pleasant Grove when he broke the bread and fed 5,000. He did that in Bethsaida. And if you saw that, I mean, you'd think that people would just flock to him to follow him. The problem was, in these cities, they didn't. They didn't. And it's very interesting because so often we see... You know, these, they're called mighty works. The mighty works. That's repeated. The mighty works. Sometimes you have a friend or a relative or a coworker, and you think, if only they could see a miracle. Man, if only they'd get healed. Or if only this miracle, then I know they would believe. Is that true? No. Faith is not produced by miracles. Miracles do not necessarily lead a person to repentance or salvation. Faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. If a person's heart is hard, no matter how many miracles they see, they're not going to believe. Why? Because they have decided in their mind that they don't believe. And there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing, no miracle, nothing that can do that. So the comparison again is these these Jews, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. Bethsaida was the birthplace of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. These were all places where Jesus' ministry was focused. And, and their mighty works were done there. They had great spiritual privilege. And yet the tragedy was that they wouldn't repent. That was the tragedy of this, of not taking advantage of the spiritual privileges. I did ask you to mark Isaiah 5, so let's just go there since you've got it marked. Let's look at this real quick. Because this is an ongoing problem for the nation of Israel. It's, What a dysfunctional relationship between God and his people. And it's not dysfunctional on God's part. That's what we'll see. Look at Isaiah 5. Verse 1 begins, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. So Isaiah speaking of singing this song to God, the well-beloved of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. In other words, it was the best place, the best ground, the great soil. And he dug it up and cleared out its stones, so he worked the land, this this vine dresser who had the vineyard. Great soil was chosen, and he got all the rocks out of it, took away all that stuff to till it up, to make it ready to be planted. And then he planted it, the next verse says, with the choicest vine. So he didn't use some crummy old you know, half-dead vine. He used the best vine, the best soil, the best uh, crop work, and the best vine. 
And so what would you expect? Well, let's see what else he did. He built a tower in its midst for a place where the vine dresser would watch and, and protect. And he made a wine press in it. Why does someone make a wine press in a vineyard he's just planted? Expectation. What do you expect when you use the... If you plant a garden and you've got the best soil in Virginia and you use the best non-hybrid or whatever plants that you use and then you have the best, you till it, you work it, you, you weed it, what do you expect? If you have great, every opportunity, if you give great privilege to this ground, you expect from it great fruitfulness. And that's why the vine dresser builds the wine press because he's expecting that there'll be a a great harvest from his vineyard because everything he's done everything to make sure that there's a good crop. It's not on his side that the problem is. But let's see what happened. He expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Grapes came, but they were wild. They weren't what he was expecting. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. I mean, whose fault was it? Why is this happening? Is it my fault or the vineyard's fault? Verse 4 says, what more could have been done to my vineyard? I mean, what else could I have done? I did everything possible. What else could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And, and there's no answer. You see, that he doesn't answer the question. We know the answer. The problem isn't with the vine dresser. The problem isn't with the vine. The problem is within the grapes themselves. So he says, now please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its heads and it shall be burned. Because it's just wild grapes. They're, they're not worth, wild grapes are not worth eating. They don't taste right. They don't look right. They're not, they're not as big. They're not as juicy. So he says, I'll take away its hedge. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall Come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no, I mean, not even going to waste the rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is what? The house of Israel. Uh oh. He just unleashed the secret to this parable. He told him, hey, I'm speaking about you, Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So back with me to Matthew, and we see the same problem today. He did everything, Jesus did everything, God did everything to provide for this nation to repent and follow Him, and yet, they didn't do it. And so He says, woe to you. Or, in Greek, it's, alas. It's, a, it's not a message of anger. It's a message of grief. You know how it is, parents, when you do everything for your kids? I mean, we parents, we go out of the way for our kids, don't we? I mean, we do, we try to give them everything possible, every, if there's something good, and we want them to have it, don't we? We want them to have better blessings and better privileges than we had. And then what happens when those kids squander what we give? It's, it's frustrating. You may get angry, but God's not angry. He's frustrated. I think He's discouraged and He says, alas, because He knows what's coming. Woe to you. Um, Interesting, the comparison he makes, the measuring stick is a comparison. I mean, how tragic is it? How hard-hearted are these Jews? Well, Tyre and Sidon were two Phoenician cities that are in Lebanon today, north of Israel, and they were known for their wickedness. Time and time again in the Bible, they're condemned. Isaiah condemns them, a burden against Israel. Matter of fact, 
Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, the wickedest queen of Israel that we read about, she was a Sidonian princess. She was from Sidon. It was a place of idolatry, a place of wickedness. And, and then Sodom, we know about Sodom and how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone because there was not even ten righteous people in the whole city. I hope Luvanna is better than that. I think it is. A wicked city. And he says, those cities were so wicked, yet, if they had seen what you guys saw, they would have repented. So it's just a comparison to show just how hard and how unwilling these people were to come to Jesus. One more interesting note. It says it will be more tolerable for those cities, the the wicked cities in the day of judgment, than it will be for the ones that had privilege and didn't repent. So which tells me one very important thing, that even in judgment, God is just. There are some that have greater opportunities than others. We know what the Bible says, to whom much is given, what? Much is required. If In America, we have tremendous spiritual privilege, don't we? You can click on your computer any time of the day and pull up a sermon. You are certainly not without understanding. You're not without knowledge. You're not without opportunity. Whereas in some places, they're fleeing for their lives because they're Christians. Or if they want to be a Christian, they have to face tremendous, tremendous persecution. We have great privileges, don't we? You have more Bibles in your house than probably half the churches in the Middle East have. I mean, some of the worshipers get around, they got, they've got one book of the Bible or two pages and they read those. Or they have to memorize. And So my question this morning is, what are you doing with your privileges? What are you doing with the spiritual privileges that you have? Maybe some of you this morning, you're like these cities. You've been coming to church week after week or you have neighbors and friends or family that are Christian and yet you continue to harden your heart and turn away even though you've heard the message over and over and over. When you stand at judgment, and that's what it says that in judgment, and I believe he's speaking of the white throne judgment that's spoken of in Revelation where uh, death and, and, and hell are cast into the lake of fire. There's the you know, kind of if you're born once, you die twice. If you're born twice, born natural and spiritual birth, then you die once and then you live eternally you're not going to say well i I didn't know it's not fair no one's going to say that i speak to many people that say you know god's preserved my life i know i was in a situation and i know i should have died i know something bad should have happened but god preserved my life and i hear that over and over and over again when i talk to people in the downtown mall or and i say well what are you doing with your second chance because most of them are doing nothing with it And I think for those that God has rescued, that God has delivered, that God has shown himself miraculously to, there's going to be a greater responsibility. I share this verse with my wife, Helga, and I talk about this. Just in our family, you know, what we've been given, the way we've been blessed as a family, I know we have incumbent upon us to share what God has given us. There's a responsibility, an obligation to minister. Because we've been given so many privileges. So I, I think that's uh, pretty clear now. You see the comparison, the frustration, or the agonizing Jesus is doing over these people that had privilege, didn't capitalize on it. Then verse 25 begins with something interesting. At that time, Jesus answered and said, now, who questioned? Well, hopefully you and I did. 
we question, and we ask this question. I think if you pay attention, you would have asked this question too. Okay, Pastor, okay, Jesus, if the people that have the greatest ever on the face of the earth, greatest spiritual privilege of having seen Jesus and, and seen his miracles, if they have the greatest privilege and they wouldn't repent, then what hope does anybody have of repenting? I mean, if they didn't, then who will? Isn't that the question that would naturally be asked? I mean, if they missed it, then then who can get it? Do I have a chance of getting it if they didn't get it? Well, look what he says. He answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Interesting. Uh, hidden from the wise and prudent. That's the answer to the question. Who can get it? The babes. The babes get it. Now, let's let's break this apart. It says, these things, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the learned and the intelligent. Now, this was not purposeful on God's part. Not by design, but by human uh, intuition, I guess you could say, or by human involvement, the way that God has presented his message, and we'll see this in a minute, just has, has made it very difficult for the intellectually proud to receive it. You see, he says you've hidden these things from the learned and the intelligent. The wise and the prudent literally means the learned and the intelligent. So is God denouncing us? I mean, am I? if you were to take this to the wrong application... You would say, okay, kids, quit school. Don't bother with college. Let's just cultivate our ignorance. And then we'll be blessed by God. And is that what God is? Is that what Jesus is saying? We know that's not true. I thank God for men and women that are brilliant thinkers that are Christians. I thank God for A.E. Wilder Smith. Three PhDs. And a devoted, when he's not no longer alive, well, he's living in heaven, but... Uh, he is a devoted, was a devoted Christian and, and spoke about origin and creation and evolution. Three PhDs. C.S. Lewis. Brilliant man. So I thank God for them. And the problem is not a denouncement of being educated or intellectual or intelligent or wise. The problem is intellectual pride that keeps you from the simplicity of the gospel. You see, the intellectual tried to make it very, uh, unintelligible for the simple. The intellectual try to place it this very, that, that seeking God and being saved and being, it's gotta be very hard and lofty and high and all of these things and, you know, we gotta go to seminary. You can't understand unless you've been to seminary. You gotta be educated. You gotta know these things or else you'll just miss it. The scribes and the Pharisees were like that. They were these learned men that, that sort of kept the keys. They thought we've got the key and we're not letting anybody else have it. Only we, the intelligent, the learned can, can get it. And, and you, if you want it, folks, common people, if you want it, you've got to go through us to get it. Anybody ever learned that, religiously speaking? Anybody ever been fed that line that the you know, only way to have it is, is got to come to the experts on it? Plato, not P-L-A-Y-D-O-H, not Plato, but I'm just, Plato, P-L-A-T-O, uh, was giving an account of the trial and the death of the philosopher Socrates. And he says this. This is, this is going to put it in perspective for you. He says, when I left him, I reasoned thus with myself. This is Plato speaking about Socrates. He said, I am wiser than this man. For neither of us appears to know anything great and good. But he fancies he knows something. Although he knows nothing. Don't you like to read that about yourself? 
Whereas I, as I do not know anything, so I do not fancy I do. In this trifling particular, then, I appear to be wiser than he, because I do not fancy I know what I do not know. And this is the problem with spiritual intellectualism. I speak to, again, I speak to people, I've been going to the soup kitchen at First Baptist Church on Fridays with a friend of mine that pastors Bethel Church. He was originally from First Baptist, and he and I have cultivated a wonderful friendship, and they have the soup kitchen every Friday at First Baptist. And um, we've been hanging out, and I went to the soup kitchen with him, and I had this great conversation with a guy at the soup kitchen um, who's just struggling in a lot of areas, but yet when it comes to his eternity, he is confident he knows what's right and wrong. And, you know, and I look around the room, and I know me. You see, here's the thing. I don't pretend to be an expert on heaven, hell, life, eternity, those kinds of things. I don't pretend in and of myself. To, what, what frame of reference do I have to know anything about those things? And as I question people, mortal human beings like you and I, as I question them, they've got it all. Well, I believe in this and I believe in that. And they'll wax very wise about all that they know about really what is going to happen when they die and all the. I say, how do you know that? Well, I, I just, it's just what I think. Oh, and you're so, in, and you're so intelligent that this is what you know. And, you know, you, you can't even get your bills paid on time. You know, don't know how to, how to fix the car. I can't fix an engine. I, I, some, the vacuum gives me a hard time. You know, I, there are a thousand things in my life. You know, we know so much about the body, the human body, yet doctors are still boggled by the mysteries. And so if we can't figure out the basics of the world we live in, then why do we as human beings think that we can figure out eternity and the universe and spiritual things? And so I just think that this is the problem. The, the babes... Again, speaking not of, of just young children, although I was so blessed this morning, we had the service before the service, and, and Rob Ford brought his young son, Dylan, and, and we just had a blast. This kid is remarkable. I mean, he, we just had so much, he is so excited about the Lord. He just couldn't wait to get to church today, couldn't wait to get to Sunday school. He wanted to sing, wanted to learn songs, and I was just so blessed by this simple eight-year-old who, who, and we recognize in him what the Bible says, let the children come to me. You don't have to force them. They want to come to Jesus. The problem is we adults get too busy. We don't have time to bring our kids to Jesus. And I think we're responsible to do that because Jesus said, let them come. They'll, if you let them loose, they'll come. If you give them the opportunity. They can't drive themselves. They can't get in the car and start it up and get here. But boy, they want to come. They're dependent on you, moms and dads, to get them in front of Jesus. That's where they want to be. And I was just so blessed by this unskilled, unlearned, eight-year-old kid who was just just pondering the things of God and sharing what he thought about the things of God. Never been to seminary. But he hit on some real key truths as we talked, instinctively, just as a babe. You know, I think the problem is, is when it comes to the refrigerator in my house, I miss a lot of the good food because it's on the low shelves. And I'm kind of tall. We have an over-under. We have the fridges on top and the freezers underneath. So I never get I'm just too lazy to get stuff out of the, out of the freezer. You know, you've got to bend down. And uh, I'm getting old. My back hurts. And so I say, hey, uh, Madeline, come here. Could you get that out of the freezer for me? 
I got to bend over to get that, and that's too hard for me, my old body. But the intellectually proud, they, they only see, they're only looking for what's on the top shelf. And God has put the gospel on the low shelf, so even someone of low stature can grasp it. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That you don't have to be brilliant to understand the cross. You don't have to be brilliant to understand the invitation of God. Fantastic. So here's the next question. How does then, if it's not discovered through intellectualism, through higher education, then how is it that we discover, how is it that the babe discovers such complex spiritual things? He says, even so, verse 26, Father, for it has seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Who does the Father, or who does the Son will to reveal the Father to? To the babes. To, to the simple. God gives understanding to the simple. Thank you, Lord, because I'm simple. And so that's who, where is all this truth revealed? Not in a book. Not in, well, you know, we have, he is the word, he is, is the word um, made flesh. But the point is, he says, no one knows the Father except me, the Son. That's where you go to find truth. Where do you go? You go to the Son. You go to Jesus. You don't have to, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing seminary, okay? I'm not bashing seminary. It's a great thing. But we have been um, convinced that somehow me and my peon little brain at home can't figure out spiritual truth. You can. You've got to go to Jesus, though. You've got to go to Jesus. You've got to look at him. Well, we'll get to that when we, when we get a little further. That's what he says. That's where you find these truths revealed in you go to the Son. Verse 28 says, and this is where we know the verses are so familiar. That's why he says, come to me. And I imagine the Pharisees and the scribes were thinking, hey, wait a second. How can he say that? He doesn't say come to church, although it's a good thing. He doesn't even say come to your pastor. Look, without coming to him, those things will do you no good. At its core, Christianity is still about a human being, a man, a woman, a child, repenting and coming to who? Say it. It's the right answer. You always know you can say Jesus and never be wrong in Sunday school. Just say Jesus and you know you're in the right, in the right ballpark though. He says, come to me. What a great invitation. So the whole rebuke thing was just to try to get a wake-up call to these Jews to say, hey, you come to me. I will show you the Father. I will show you what God is all about. I will show you what really, really matters. Come to me. And who is the invitation to? All of you who labor and are heavy laden. I like that. Again, the people that are, are uh, laboring to weary, with wearisome effort to exhaustion. The exhausted people. And the ones who have been loaded down with heavy burdens placed on them. If you woke up this morning and if you lived the last week, you recognize that the world puts tremendous burdens on us. There's just, it's more. The world is never satisfied. Your boss is never satisfied. More and more and more. And that's tiring, isn't it? Man, is it? Somebody say amen. It's not a Methodist church. You can say amen. I don't know if, I don't know if they amen or not, but thank you. We are tired. 
burdens, things laid on us. The world just demands more and more. And I watch you guys. You have no time for the things of God because you're so busy in the world trying to keep up with what the world is demanding from you. And we run on this treadmill like little hamsters in the wheel just going round and round. And he says, for you, who the world has put heavy burdens on, who are exhausted from trying to meet the demands of being a people pleaser and all those things, he says, come to me. But the burdens also were the religious burdens. Matthew 23, uh, Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees, he said, you bind heavy burdens and you lay them on men's shoulders and you don't lift a finger to help them. So we understand these burdens could be religious burdens too. Maybe some of you have been familiar with that. You've been in a religion where it's just more, more you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you don't do this and there's all kinds of rules. They had 613 spiritual or, or religious rules that the people had to follow. There's a certain way to brush your teeth, a certain way to wash your hands, a certain way to eat, a certain things to eat. All these rules. And the people were just going crazy thinking, how are we ever going to get to God through all these rules? We can't keep them. And it's tiring and we're worn out religiously. And then we know people, they've been worn out by the world and worn out religiously, whether whatever church they've been part of or whatever cult where there's been legalism. And then they come to church and Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. And what do we do? We heap burdens on them. You gotta do this and you gotta do that. Look folks, this is the church. It's not Israel. It's not the world. We are the church. And the mandate for the church is still, come to me and I will give you rest. So we have to be very careful about creating hoops and burdens for people that come to church, that come to Jesus. But notice the rest quickly as we as we finish this up. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for what? Rest for your souls. So is he, is Jesus speaking about a physical rest? Like, hey, come to me and we'll go play golf together every Saturday. And, you know, we, we'll just hang out, watch TV together. And we'll just get lazy because now we've come to Jesus. And he said he's going to give me rest. And so I'm just going to hang out on the couch with the remote control because I'm worshiping Jesus now. And I'm all about the rest thing. Is that the truth? Man, I've been busier since I became a Christian. I know people in this fellowship that are retired and you're so busy laboring to serve the Lord. Paul said, I labor more abundantly than they all. There's two wonderful ladies in the book of Romans named Tryphena and Tryphosa. Their name mean, names mean delicate and dainty, twins, no doubt. And yet Paul says they labored in the Lord. So again, we're not speaking of physical rest. Look, there is work to be done for the kingdom. We are on, the, the clock is ticking, Jesus is coming back, and the love of Christ is compelling us. The rest is a rest for your soul. And the, the word soul in Greek is suke, it means breath literally, and we take it to mean the breath of life or life. Rest for your life. Suke uh, is where we get psychology, the study of life. And it's funny that there are there's such an increase of people going to counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, trying to find rest, intermission, time out for their souls, for their lives. Now, I'm going to say this, and, and I don't want to seem 
condemning. I'm not condemning. This is an article I printed out of Psychology Today. Okay, so it's not a an anti-psychology uh, publication. Uh, and I and I know if some of you in here are a psychologist, uh, this is just this is the article. It's called Why Shrinks Have Problems. Now I didn't write it. Uh, it's just trying to prove a point here and trying to bring some reality to the church. 1899, Sigmund Freud got a new telephone number, 14362. He was 43 at the time, and he was profoundly disturbed by the digits in the new number. He believed they signified that he would die at age 61, or at best at age 62. He clung painfully to this bizarre belief for many years. Presumably, he was forced to revise his estimate on his 63rd birthday, but he was haunted by other superstitions till the day he died by assisted suicide, no less, at the ripe age of 83. That's just for starters. Freud also had frequent blackouts. He refused to quit smoking even after 30 operations to correct the extensive damage he suffered from cancer of the jaw. He was a self-proclaimed neurotic. He suffered from a mild form of agoraphobia, and for a time he had a serious cocaine problem. Neuroses, superstition, substance abuse, blackouts, and suicide, so much for the father of psychoanalysis. But are these problems typical for psychologists? How are Freud's successors doing? Or to put the question another way, are shrinks really crazy? I myself have been a psychologist for nearly two decades. Nobody's walked out yet, so I guess we're, we're, you'll see where we're going with this. Primarily teaching and conducting research. So the truth is that I had some preconceptions about this topic before I began to investigate it. When years ago, my mom told me that her one and only session with a psychotherapist had been disappointing because the guy was obviously much crazier than I was, I assumed or at least hoped that she was joking. Mental health professionals have access to special tools and techniques to help themselves through perils of living, right? Sure, Freud was peculiar, and yes, I'd heard that Jung had a nervous breakdown, but I'd always assumed that rumors to the contrary notwithstanding, mental health professionals were probably fairly healthy. Turns out I was wrong, he says. A couple other things I'll read from this. Mental health professionals are, in general, a fairly crazy lot, he says, at least as troubled as the general population. And that's the, the point I want to make, at least as troubled as the general population. He goes on to say, here's a theory that's not so crazy. Maybe people enter mental health field because they have a history of psychological difficulties. Perhaps they're trying to understand or overcome their own problems, which would give us a pool of therapists who are a, a hint unusual to begin with. That alone could account for the image of the crazy shrink. One of the many prominent psychotherapists I interviewed in recent months only one admitted that he had entered the profession because of personal problems, but most felt this was a common occurrence. In fact, the idea that therapy is a haven for the psychologically wounded is as old as the profession itself. I could go on with research about these things and, and how many that have, have struggled um, have then turned into these areas. The point I want to make is Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. And there are many things people try to do to avoid coming to him. And they try to get help in a thousand other arenas. From I, Here's what I think. For those of you that are currently going to psychiatrists, psychologists, you're under their care, here's what you do. Next time you have your appointment, say, look, my pastor told me this weekend that you're as crazy as me. Get, grab my hand. We're going to church Sunday. You need to come to Jesus. Then you send him a bill. We had a young, young guy in the church that, that had come in on third of suicide attempt. And um, it's just 
coming to Jesus, and it was changing his life, and it has changed his life, and he's still got some uh, big struggles and big hurdles, but he went, he went off all his medication. I'm not saying that you should just go off all any medications or anything like that. Please understand, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not trying to say these things, but for him... He's still, to this day, off all his psychiatric medications, which he was on from, from the time he was a kid. He, he went into his, 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 the office of the guy that had been treating him, and, and he, he gave him a book called Happiness is a Choice by two psychotherapists who are both Christians. And he said, Jesus is my drug. I, I don't, I, I'm, here's, here's the book. And he gave him a copy of the book, and he says, thank you very much. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's what you should do. But I know what you should do, and I know what the Bible is saying you should do. The Bible is saying you should come to Jesus. And he will give you rest for your soul. So a couple other things as we finish up here. He says, take my yoke upon you. So it's not that we become unyoked again altogether. Take my yoke, and it speaks of work or an obligation. A yoke is an obligation put on somebody, and that's how they would look at you know, the yoke of the law or the yoke of of being a Pharisee or the yoke of all these oral traditions. And Jesus says, take my yoke and learn. And learn of me. Learn the things that originate with me. Because I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the only place you will find Jesus give a personal description of himself. Isn't that cool? You never see Jesus describe himself except for right here, the way he describes himself. I mean, of all the way God in the flesh could describe himself, what does he choose? I'm gentle and I'm humble. When you take on the the yoke of Christ and and you learn of him, you learn about gentleness. Man, being harsh is hard work, isn't it? Being legalistic, trying to point out everybody else's faults so you can look better. Man, that's a lot of energy, a lot of effort. That's a big burden. But when, when God teaches you to be gentle, all of a sudden you don't have to worry about all that stuff anymore. You just get to bless people. You just get to love people. And that's a great blessing. And also, being proud is a huge burden. Having to always prove your knowledge, having to always prove that you're something, prove that you're ambitious, or prove this, or do better, all those things. Bah! That's tiring. And being ambitious is tiring. If I'm going to be ambitious, I want to be ambitious to be a servant. That's what I want to do better. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus breaks it down to two simple commands. They had 613 pages and pages on, on how to do this and how to do that. All of this stuff. And you had to be, didn't know it, you had to be on the in crowd. And Jesus breaks it down to love God and love your neighbor. Love is not a burden, folks. Loving people is not a burden. That's what the Apostle John said. He said, and your command is not burdensome. You guys have heard the phrase, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Uh, the phrase, of course, there was a song by the Hollies, I think, that was of that name years ago. The phrase was, uh, is associated with a guy named Edward J. Flanagan, who was the founder of Boys Town. He came across a little drawing of a young boy carrying his brother in the Christmas 1941 edition of Lewis Alice Messenger. Uh, it must be a magazine. I'm not familiar with it. And the caption under this said, He ain't heavy, mister. He's my brother. And that became the catchphrase uh, for Boys Town. And the, the, the whole point of it is, is here's this heavy 
this, this kid's brother is riding, he's getting a ride on his back, and the guy says, man, that kid, he must be heavy. And the point is, is he's my brother, I love him. And because where there's love, it, it's, not a, it's not work, it's not a burden. I'm doing what I'm doing because I love him. And therefore, it's not hard. It's easy. No problem at all. We could go on, but I'm, I've said enough, said too much. I think the, um, the passage uh, is pretty clean, clean plain, and simple. Um, Jesus says, take my yoke on you and learn. I am gentle and lowly. St. Augustine said, because God has made us for himself, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. So as Phil comes up, and we're going to close with a song. Phil, yes? Got something uh, that, that can help us to consider? I just want to extend the invitation. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about uh, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. But if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. And so just another opportunity this morning um, you know, to, to not be scared of, of standing for Christ. And, and maybe it's you that says, you know what? I have been relying on my, my medications or my drugs or my, my alcohol or my responsibilities or, or my past lifetime and all these things that I've, I've been trying to search in corners and crevices and find satisfaction and find what I'm longing for. And I just keep searching. And I cannot, none of it satisfies. None of it has brought me what I've truly needed. Then the invitation again to you this morning is to stand and be recognized and to come to Jesus and find that rest. So just sit for Phil will sing a first go round just for a time for you to reflect and pray and think on these things. And then uh, Phil will invite you to stand and join in singing and then he will excuse you.